Welcome to A Walk In My Stilettos, where our goal is to help you walk in your greatness. I'm your host, Makini Smith. Hey, Faith Walkers. Thank you for taking the time to join us on the A Walk In My Stilettos podcast. We have conversations with amazing women that are letting us step into their stilettos. I get inspired when I see another woman succeeding, but as a mindset coach, what interests me more is her backstory and her mindset on how she got there. Today's guest is about to bless us with her testimony. And since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. Chantelle Amsterdam is a wife, a mother of three boys. She's known as a creative visionary who exerts her passions through storytelling and visual communication. She's the founder of Neary Media, where her endeavors revolve in the digital marketing and PR branding space. Chantelle also chronicles her amazing journey of mothering on anointedmom.com. Please welcome to the show, Chantelle. Hello, hello. I'm doing the queen's way. You know, we your hands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The royal ways. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hello. Yes, you make me sound so fantastic. I when didn't. Really I didn't do cool. anything. This is you. This is. <laughs> I, I tell women all the time, like this is who you are. This is what you do. This is what you've accomplished. I am just sharing that. That's that's you. That's all you. Yeah. While while everything you said is true, there are times where I stop and look at my home and my life, and wonder, like, wow. How is it that I be capable of anything right now? My house looks like Jumanji and my children (laughs) have and my house is just my life sometimes just feels just the complete opposite of what you made it sound like. So, but I appreciate that. That is, that's the beauty of motherhood, right? (laughs) We wear these multiple hats. I love it. I think, you know, sometimes, yes, I'm, I'm grateful. I think as, as women, we've become accustomed to um, wearing the multiple hats and we make it look great, but sometimes behind closed doors, it's a hot mess, but it's a beautiful, a beautiful mess. Yeah, it's definitely a unique experience. You know, being a mom is like no other role ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. it's really, it's really selfless and sometimes maddening. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my morning today was just wow! I couldn't believe it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> do you want me to about my morning? <laughs> I'll just, I'll just uh, actually, yes, I would love to start with your morning. <laughs> but first, the very first question that I love to start with as an icebreaker because. Like I just said, as moms, we have, you know, all these different hats that we wear, all these different titles that we go by. So a title that I feel is very important is your name. So I want to start there first. So Chantal, do you know what your name means? Well, yes, I do. Because I did my homework. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard enough of podcasts to know that I need to know what it means. Um, I actually looked it up years ago and I forgot. It means, it's French and it Mm -hmm. means um, stone. Mm -hmm. Um, or boulder, and I, there's another definition which has something to do with singing or a song, which 
I never appreciated when I was younger and I looked that up, but now that I'm older, I could definitely see how that is very, very uh, relevant to me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I always wanted something pretty, you know, like, you know, some girls' names means like lily or flower or god beauty or (laughs) and mine means big rock. <laughs> you know, knowing you personally, I think that description is fitting because you are strong. You know, when you play that game, rock, paper, scissors, yeah. you're a rock. You know, as much as we may not know what you deal with on the inside, on the outside, you are a rock. You appear strong and solid. You're a solid human being. Yeah, I could definitely see that now. I can humbly acknowledge that now. <laughs> now you can tell us about your chaotic morning. <laughs> uh, it's just amazing. I really wanted to be composed and just very serene and just, you know, well prepared for the podcast. And, you know, in life, especially motherhood life, you can do whatever you want to prepare yourself, to be organized, to get all your ducks in a row. And then at the very last minute, something can just happen that completely undoes. I might as well have just stayed up all night partying because (laughs) I woke up and my plans were just out the window. You have to be prepared for the unexpected. Mm -hmm. So much so, just in normal everyday life. But then once you're a mom, you're actually responsible for as many lives as you have children. And then when you're Mm -hmm. a wife, you have to kind of be your husband's backup. Mm -hmm. And so essentially you have to be able to roll with everybody's punches, not just Mm -hmm. the punches that are coming at you. And days like today are a reminder of that. I think one of the beauties of being able to be resilient is being able to adjust to change because the only thing constant in life is change, right? Things are constantly changing. And like you said, like you can have a plan and I always have a plan, but God has his plan. So (laughs) our plan, you know, sometimes (laughs) he'll laugh at it. And I think he has an interesting sense of humor and uh, totally throw our plan out the window sometimes. But hey, we roll with the punches, right? Exactly. Quite often, I think his plan is for you to not stick to a plan because when you keep, setting things up and and planning things out. And if it keeps happening exactly the way you want it to all the time, then, and you're able to maintain this control, then you start assuming a a mindset of independence. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you have control Mm -hmm. and, you know, you don't need him because if if we're always in control and we can manifest the outcome all the time, then Mm -hmm. why do we really need God, right? Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes it is his will that things don't go as planned. And that way you can be like, okay, seriously, God, you got to get me out of this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that would definitely be the theme of my story. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely believe that God is in control of everything and he gives us power of choice. And I think that sometimes he'll allow things to test us to see the choices that we're going to make. But yeah, he knows, he knows everything. What did you want to be when you're a little girl? I wanted to, the first thing I wanted to be was a fashion designer. Um, Because I love to draw. I am a very talented artist. That's pretty much what I spent most of my time doing. Mm-hmm. And I loved clothes. I loved Barbie clothes. I loved shoes. I loved accessories. I had a friend who, whose parents always went to New York, like multiple times a year. And whenever they came back, she always had like amazing clothes. So 
I wanted to be a fashion designer. Yeah, for a very long time. I think if I could pick just one thing, it would be that. And then, you know, as I got older, you know, I wanted, I developed other interests and, you know, wanted to be a teacher and stuff. But I think, yeah, fashion designer was what I wanted to be for a long time. So what inspired you to start Neary Media? I wanted our community. I wanted the Black community and communities of color to be able to tell their own story. What I noticed was with the internet is that it really was becoming an alternate reality. People who existed in the real world were creating existences online. And I noticed that the Black community's existence online was being uh, illustrated by people who weren't Black. So things mm-hmm. like world, worldstar.com. And so if we were looking for who we were online, it was very stereotypical uh, often really negative. And I was like, no, the online world gives us the opportunity to tell our own stories. It's not being regulated, which in this case could be a very good thing, which means there's no one censoring us. There's no one controlling, you know, what we say and who we say it to. And mm-hmm. I thought we need a platform. We need a platform where we can all tell our own stories. And if people really wanted to know who we were as a people and as a community all over the world, that they could come directly to us to hear our side of who we were. I have three boys and I think, I think a lot about who they're going to be and their childhood and them being online and what are they seeing? What is the internet telling them about themselves and their community and their people? And uh, I was frightened that they mm. would look at some of the things that were online and be like, okay, that's who I need to be. And that's who we are as a people. And so at the very least, I said, you know what, I'm going to start Neary Media to create content to tell our stories the way it should be told. Wow. That's powerful. I think actually you should connect with Ashley Coleman. She was on episode 10 and, you know, she's created a community of cultivating and amplifying the voices of writers of color. So I would um, definitely love to connect with her. Yeah. I'll, I'll connect you both. I think that's beautiful. So what inspired you the most about what you do? The people that I meet. So when I want to tell stories, I don't want to tell my story because I, as you know, never think that my story is very interesting. Um, Pause, stick a pin (laughs) before you even finish that sentence, because I want, I want the audience to know that you have such an amazing, powerful, impactful, inspiring story. And I cannot wait for you to be comfortable and in a position to openly share that. I've been blessed to hear your story and you've shared so many different parts of it with me over time but I am so inspired by your strength and resilience and how you have been able to deal with things still inspire still be a mom still be a wife and I don't want to say manage but you've shown so much grace (laughs) through it all So before you say you don't think your story is that interesting, I want the audience to know that you have an amazing story and that they need to stay tuned until you are ready. Continue. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. What I love about it, what inspires me the most about what I do are the people that I meet and how diverse our community is. And, uh, you know, Neary means 
it's a Hebrew word. I didn't know mm-hmm. this when I, I chose the name, but I decided mm-hmm. to look it up. I okay. loved the name Neri. There was this really cool girl in high school and her name was Jennifer Neri. Shout out to Jennifer Neri. <laughs> but I loved her last name. She was Italian and I just thought it was so sophisticated and really like, you know, just elegant. And I always said if I had a daughter that I would name her Neri. Wow. And, uh, you know, after dealing with infertility and, you know, growing older, the likelihood of me having a daughter that wasn't adopted that I could name were, you know, the the chances are slim. So I figured, okay, why don't I name the company Neri? Mm-hmm. And then I decide, okay, wait, maybe I should look it up. So I looked it up and Neri actually means the light. It's the it's a Hebrew word that is used specifically for a light that reveals what is hidden in darkness. Mm. And so that's what I thought or that's what I wanted. I was just, I got chills because I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to find all the hidden stories from mm-hmm. our community mm-hmm. and bring them into the light. I want to shine a light on people. So Neri is very much about others, about the greatness, the hidden greatness of our community, the hidden greatness in individuals. And that's the part that I love is finding individuals and actually uh, quite often they don't realize how great they are. You know, oh, when you sounds familiar. Them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were gonna go there. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but they really don't like, you know, they think they're just doing their thing and this is what I do and this is what I love. And it's like, do you realize the impact that you are having on let's say young women or young black men or on a particular industry because they're renegades. They're like not only the first to do what they're doing, but they're black and they're the mm-hmm. first to do what they're doing and how just them being themselves, just revealing that so that others can see is changing mindsets. It's changing, mm-hmm. you know, young black mindsets. It's changing the mindsets of people who are not black. It's changing the mindsets of white people who define us by what they see on television or what they've been taught. So that's really what I love about what I do is just discovering or revealing hidden greatness in our community and in the people that I speak to. I love that because many times, especially like you said, people who are just being themselves, living their everyday lives, the humility of those people because they don't recognize the greatness that they're doing, it's mm-hmm. it's beautiful to see. And being yeah. able to share those stories and shine that light on them, that just yeah. speaks to you and who you are as an individual as well. And as I said before, you know, you don't speak to the greatness of your own story, but that's also through your humility. So I love that as well okay i'm really gonna have to tell this story because your listeners are gonna be like okay this is like some sort of inside thing between them like i i have to tell the story so maybe I, that's what i'll do i can't force you because you have to be ready but a part of the reason why i wanted to have you on because i know that that part that you know that i'm speaking of you may not necessarily be ready to speak on yet but you did say that you um, were willing to share you know your experiences with infertility so what words of encouragement would you give another woman that's dealing with that right now oh it's so hard so my husband and i got married we wanted to have four children Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to adopt. I've always wanted to adopt. So we agreed that we would have two biological children and then we'd adopt two biological children. 
and we started trying to conceive on our first date. (laughs) 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 But we knew, we knew, we just knew it was love at first sight. And we just knew, Mm -hmm. like, I knew it was him. He knew I was the one. And after a year of being married, we realized there might be something wrong. And uh, I had been pregnant before, so mm-hmm. I just never thought that there would be any issues. He went to the doctor before we got married and was told that there may be some issues with motility and so that it may take a while. But I figured, let's just nip this in the bud and go see a specialist. So we did. Mm-hmm. And we filled out a questionnaire. And when we went in to see the doctor, the doctor kept focusing on me and she kept asking me questions. And I was kind of getting annoyed because I was like, we're here for him. Like, we know that he's been spoken Mm -hmm. to about a potential issue. So why does she keep asking me questions? And she started asking me, you know, details on this and details on that. And so in the end, it turned out that I have polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is quite common, but often very just undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what that is, it's a hormonal issue based on the fact that your insulin levels are out of whack. So because your insulin levels are out of whack, your androgens or your male-female hormones sometimes are out of whack, and it just causes this chain reaction where you don't always ovulate, your cycles are off, and it has other effects on you. It affects your energy levels. Um, you may have excessive hair growth. It makes it very difficult for you to lose weight and very easy for you to gain weight. And so it was heartbreaking to realize that it wasn't impossible for me to conceive, but it was going to be a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. what she recommended is that we try to get my ovulation in sync. And so there was a lot of hormone treatment that didn't work. Then we started doing artificial insemination and that didn't work. And I think it was after about a year of going through this process, I just, I couldn't do it. You know, Mm -hmm. I was working overtime because I wanted to make sure that I could make the payments. Uh, Infertility treatments are extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. So I was working ridiculous hours, like 14 hour days, trying to increase our income. And it was just, it had such a huge impact on our marriage. It had a huge huge impact on, you know, my mental health. And then there's the hormones. I mean, you wake up and that day of the month when you have your period, it's like your child died because Mm. you're just hoping, praying that like, I'm going to be pregnant this month. Every month is like, you're trying to get pregnant every single month, every 30 days. And it's this emotional roller coaster that you don't share with anybody because you're ashamed you know, you start thinking, maybe I'm being punished. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe I wasn't meant to be a mother. There were times where I told my husband, you know, if you want to get a divorce, I understand. Like, I want you to be a father. I don't want you to have to go through this. So these are the things that women or couples who go, who suffer infertility go through. It's more than the infertility. It's things like not going to your nieces or nephew or godchildren's birthday parties because you don't know if you'll be able to hold it together today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's things like avoiding the baby section in the department store because you just can't do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so what I decided to do, I just prayed a lot and I thought, wait a minute, maybe God is kind of delaying our birth children because, 
she wants us to adopt first. And so my husband and I said, okay, let's stop <laughs> the infertility <laughs> stuff. It's just really not working for us. And uh, like, I didn't think I could survive it, to be honest. And let's pursue adoption. So we decided to do a public adoption. We went through the process. We got approved. And we were told within five months that we would be parents, that we'd have a mm-hmm. child placed with us for adoption. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm just pausing because I realize I'm segueing into the adoption side and you asked me about the infertility. No, side. no, please, please go ahead. Cause that was going to be my next question because you've decided to adopt. I wanted you to share what was that process like for you? So go ahead. The process was pretty smooth. We decided to do public adoption because we were aware of how many children of color were in the foster care system and that many of them never got adopted and pretty much aged out as foster children. And so we figured, you know, let's do that. It's also the solution that's the least expensive. And after spending so much money on infertility, we really didn't want to spend another $60,000 adopting a child from, you know, somewhere else in the world. So mm-hmm. it seemed like the best option. My husband's cousin also adopted and fostered. So we got a lot of coaching and encouragement from her. So we went through the process, we were approved. And we were told that within five months, for sure, we'd have a child placed with us. We were so excited. Um, You know, we told everyone that we're, you know, we're going to be adopting and we're waiting on a child. And that's what we did. We waited and we Mm -hmm. waited and we waited and we waited and nothing. I called our caseworker and she was like, you know, we don't have any children to place with you. And, you know, I just thought it really strange. And then that in itself was devastating Mm -hmm. because Because you've already had the waiting process trying to get pregnant now this waiting with the adoption yeah so you know it just got to a point where I'd come home from work on a Friday I dreaded Fridays everyone was like TGIF yeah what are you doing this weekend and I hated Fridays because I wasn't at work which means I'd be at home in our home which was quiet and always clean Mm -hmm. Now mm-hmm. I look back on that and I'm like, why? Why? Silence was deafening. It was like everyone was looking forward to going home to their families, and I was just going home to this two-day reminder that I don't have kids. We don't wow. have kids. We don't have a family. And so one day I was at work and I was just frustrated, so thinking about the whole thing. And I called the society. And I asked to speak to my worker, and her assistant was like, oh, well, she's not here anymore. She's retired. And I said, well, I don't want to understand what's going on. I mean, we were approved two years ago. We were told that a child would be placed with us within five months, and we haven't heard anything. And so I'm just, I find it really frustrating. And she's like, oh, I remember you. And she's basically, she said, "Um, oh, you know what? We weren't handed off your file, so I'm going to look into that. But she said, in the meantime, she's like, I saw these two kids and I thought of you guys, but I thought maybe a child had already been placed. And so she goes, would you mind if I handed your file off to another worker? And I was like, by all means. Mm -hmm. So long story short, our worker retired, our file slipped through the cracks, and um, we got a new worker who had told us about these two boys, they were brothers, and that she thinks that we'd be a great match. And um, so I looked at them online. They sent me a link to their profile, and I could not work all day. I fell in love with them instantly. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I just, I was like, okay, I went back to work, but then I'd stop and stare at them. So I talked to my husband. He said, no way, two kids is too much. We need to start with just one. Kids are expensive. And I said to him, can you just do me a favor? Can we pray about it? Because we said that we didn't want to pick our kids. We said we wanted God to choose our children. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe that we waited all this time because there are children, there are specific children or a specific child that God wants us to be parents to. Right. And so he said, okay. We had two weeks to decide. And on the day of the decision, I woke up and he was already awake, staring at the ceiling. And I said, good morning. What are you thinking about? And he said, I'm thinking about our boys. Aww. So that's how we came to adopt Prince Chocolate and Prince Caramel. <laughs> um, it, it was great. They were fantastic. They were hilarious. And they just took to us. Our family embraced them, which I'm totally grateful for. Mm-hmm. Um, they there because their mother was prone to being with violent men and they had been exposed to domestic violence and mm-hmm. it wasn't safe. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a third child and he was still in care. She had made steps in the right direction uh, away from um, her abusive boyfriend. They decided they were going to try to work with her to see if she could hold on to her youngest son. But we were advised that, you know, if she didn't, that they would be looking to place him with us if we were willing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we already decided that we would definitely take him because his two older brothers were amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, so by the time we finalized the adoption of the first two boys after they had been placed, I asked about their younger brother and we were told that their mom was doing well. She had her own apartment. She was enrolled at Ryerson. She wanted to be a social worker. And her intention was to work with uh, women who were physically abused. And I thought, that's amazing. She has her mm-hmm. son full-time, care. But then I was overwhelmed with this huge guilt because I thought, well, maybe she needed just time. Mm-hmm. Maybe she didn't need to lose her first two children. And maybe these are not the children that God wanted us to parent, you know? And I just I felt overwhelmed. I was like, you know, that maybe this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And 30 days later, after that conversation with the worker, I got a call from her. Now, this is after the boys are placed. The adoption's final. I'm no longer involved with children, children's aid whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And she called saying that she's coming over with another worker and she needs to speak to me alone. And the other worker is going to take the kids outside to play. And I'm panicking. I'm like, mm-hmm. what is this about? And um, she said, well, I can't discuss it over the phone, but we are coming there now. So 30 minutes later, I'm sitting down and I'm just called my husband. He's like, call me as soon as she gets there. I want to know what's going on. She sits me down and tells me that their little brother is dead. It's going to be all over the news and I have to keep the kids away from the television and that the parents are being held responsible. So um, they've been incarcerated, they've been arrested. It was just really, really devastating. Mm -hmm. And it was unfortunately also an affirmation that, yes, the children were really in danger and everything wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just that alone was really sad and knowing that we'd have to tell them this story at some point, but I felt, okay, great. You know what? They're with us. 
they're safe. We've spared them the possibility of that happening to them. And then I'm washing the dishes and I break a glass. I pause, I turn around, I look at my husband and I told him she's pregnant. This is two months after we find out about what happened to the younger one. And he's like, who's pregnant? What are you talking about? I said, she's pregnant. And he goes, who told you that? I said, I don't know how I know, but I know. Mm. And he's looking at me like, okay, sure enough. A month later, I get a call from our workers saying, we just found out from the facility that she is indeed with child and she's due to have the child in February. And we haven't done all our homework yet, but if we find that there's no next of kin, you guys will be the obvious choice for placement. She has said that she is not planning to parent the child. Obviously, she can't. She's mm-hmm. incarcerated. But she did say that she really would want the child to be placed with your family if you're willing. So we decided, okay, we don't even want to entertain that until the date comes because if they mm-hmm. find out that there are other options, we don't want to be heartbroken. Right. So a month before his due date, they come to us. They said, there's no one that the man that she was with at the time, she said, is not the child's father and that she had an encounter with a stranger and that's how she got pregnant. I didn't really believe it. I don't think they really believed it, but that's the story that they were going with. And we said, yes, we'll take him. So he was born on the 12th. He came two weeks early and was placed with us on Valentine's Day. And it was amazing mm. to have a newborn. A newborn. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was gorgeous. He was just amazing. He was just, he was the refute of everything that I believed during my infertility. He was the proof that God loved me. He was the proof that I was meant to be a mother. He was everything to me. Amen. Yeah, he is just awesome. So we named him Harlem after Mm -hmm. the Harlem Renaissance. We were told that, you know, everything should move quickly. Within three months, uh, he'll be placed with us for adoption. We were made his foster parents because it was the only way that we could keep him. Mm -hmm. Um, Or else they'd have to place him with another foster family until all the legal stuff was done. Fast forward now, they go to court and the judge says, well, how do you know that this boyfriend is not the biological father? You can't just take her word for it. You need to do a paternity test. Paternity test says he's the dad. They let him know. And now he's saying that, no, my mother is going to take care of the child. So at this point, he's about six months old. And he meets his grandmother. She decides that she wants to put forth a plan to adopt him. Wow. And that's where the nightmare begins. This is what I was referring to earlier in terms of your story. So I'm glad that you're opening up and sharing the full experience with us. Continue, please. Yes. So I've been very apprehensive of telling the story because it's not just my story. Yes, of course. uh, Their story. And I probably shouldn't be telling this story if I haven't told them this story. Mm -hmm. But my husband and I were very close to telling the story. There's some details, obviously, that I will leave out, but my two older children are, are, are at an age where there's a lot that they already know about their past and why they ended up in care and why they were adopted. And for my youngest, um, he's in a position now where he could possibly be exposed to his birth father, who has a very disturbing history of violence. So we're going to be forced to tell him some stuff mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. to, just to keep them safe and keep him aware. 
Right. So, okay, so we meet the grandmother. She's lovely. She's a typical West Indian grandmother. She's awesome. And we think, okay, well, maybe there's a way that this can work. She can have access, but as long as we know that she's not going to enable access between our son and her son, everything should be fine. Mm-hmm. So we tried mediation. We tried to negotiate different types of access. We also tried to find out from her what she thought of her son and did she think he was a risk? What did she think about the fact that he was accused of being responsible for the death of a two-year-old? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she spoke really good things about him, that this has to be a mistake. He works with children all the time. Anyone who knows him knows he's not violent. He's never done anything violent that she knows of. And we were like, okay, well, well, maybe this is possible then. We've tried so many different mediations and settlements, and nothing worked. We offered her the sun, moon, and the stars, and for whatever reason, it's been over, he's over a year old. He knows us as his parents. He knows his siblings as his siblings, and he knows our home as his home. She feels that it's not enough. She has mm-hmm. to raise him. And it just didn't sit well with me because it was like, why? We're supposed to be putting the needs of the child first. If we're giving you the same, we were giving her more access to him than our mothers had, our parents had to him. Mm-hmm. She would be seeing him more. And it wasn't enough. And so I started to realize maybe this isn't about her. Maybe this is about her getting access to him so that when her son is released, that her son could parent him Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. if she doesn't believe that he's guilty then she feels that he's being deprived of being a father right long story short we couldn't avoid court I had to get a lawyer and I delayed and delayed and delayed because I just I was just holding on to the hope that she was going to settle out of court and when it was clear that she wasn't this is where God steps in so now I've tried everything in my power to get her to settle it's not happening and we're recommended a lawyer. I call that lawyer. He says he's not available. He gives me three lawyers to call in this particular order. He said, call these three lawyers in this order, and hopefully one of them can take your case. It's about six weeks before we're supposed to go to court. And I should have called the lawyer months ago, but because I really believed that God was going to step in and touch her heart or that I could convince her to settle, more that I could convince her to settle than God would step in. Now we're six weeks from trial, and I'm only now hiring a lawyer. Wow. I call all three lawyers. The last one, I lawyer, I left a message, and she was the first one to call back. And <laughs> she's hilarious. She's like, um, I'm on vacation. What is this about? So I tell her <laughs> the story, and turns out she's the best child protection lawyer in Toronto. Mm-hmm. She said, I'm on, she said, I'm on vacation. I want you to write your entire story from the time you met your husband to, the, to today, to the time that you called me. I want to know every single detail about you. You need to email it to me as soon as possible, and then I'll call you back. It took me 14 hours to write it. She read it in two, told me to come see her uh, on the Monday, and told us she's going to take our case. And we didn't have the money. Children's Aid agreed to pay the legal fees. And when I told her that, she raised an eyebrow and said, why are they paying your legal fees? They never pay your legal fees. In the history of me being a lawyer, they've never paid anyone's legal fees. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't know. They just said that they would. They were only providing a legal aid budget, and she clearly doesn't work for legal aid budgets. And told me that I was going to work 
I was going to work with her to help compensate for the cost. So I essentially ended up being, I guess, a legal assistant to my yeah, own case. Yeah, law, law clerk. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was writing affidavits. I was proofreading stuff. I was working very closely with her. But in the end, what had happened is she did something that Children's Aid probably should have done from the very beginning. She looked at the evidence that the criminal court had against the birth father and what we found out was astounding, that he had over 30 years of criminal history. He had an enormous number of police reports. Though he had no convictions, he had a lot, there were a lot of violent accusations. He had gang affiliations. He had been shot. He had been stabbed. And there were numerous allegations of domestic violence. Wow. The testimony, the transcripts from the criminal file were available to Children's Aid. Had they asked for them, they didn't. And the testimonies that were in there were horrendous. There was a cellmate confession. So apparently he had confessed to a cellmate that he had at the time. And the details were de- details that no one could have guessed. And essentially what had happened was he was frustrated with the child and was very violent. And the child sustained abdominal, internal abdominal injuries and suffered over a week and, oh, man. And, and died. The birth mom was one month away from her last vig- visit with Children's Aid. After that, she would have had him completely unsupervised. She was keeping him out of daycare because he had so many bruises and scratches mm-hmm. on him that it would have been a red flag. So that's why Children's Aid had no idea what was going on. And so these are all the things that were revealed to us six weeks before the trial. We also found out by asking Harlem, my lawyer told me to ask Harlem, if when he spends time with his birth grandmother, does he talk on the phone? And we found out that she was enabling phone calls, multiple phone calls on the days where she had access to him. So so he he was speaking to his birth father who was in prison. Which was against the terms of her access with children's aid. Right. So she not only misrepresented who he was and lied on several occasions, but she was enabling and developing a relationship between him and his birth father and denied it um, wow. when, we, when we confronted her. So it was insane. From that point on, it was a battle. I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the legal system. One thing I did learn is that, you know, my lawyer, I'll never forget this quote, but she looked at me and she said, you need to document every conversation. You need to be very careful about the things you do and the things you say and that make sure that you hold up your obligations at all times because she said, quote, litigation and court is a battle, it's a war, Mm -hmm. but weapons are forged outside of court. Mm-hmm. It's not what it happens in court that hurts you. It's what happens when you're not in court that right. hurts you. So you have to always remember that. And I never forgot it. We're being brought into court. She's asking for more access. She's asking for overnight. We finally insist that children's aid minimize her access because we know that she's enabling phone calls between them. We ask for her phone records to prove that she's doing it and to get an idea of how frequent it was happening. And no matter how much we tried, no matter how many people agreed that Harlem should be with us, nothing materialized. 
it, it almost seemed like it was this slow spiral downward that had gotten us to the point of last fall, six months away from Harlem's fifth birthday. He's been with us for five years, mm-hmm. and he's still not our son. Wow. Legally, still not our son. Wow. And, um, you know, after all these attempts and just numerous, numerous stories and numerous nightmare scenarios, my lawyer says to me, we have to settle out of court. You're scheduled to go back to court in December. And she said, I would be lying to you if I told you there was no way that Harlem could be taken away from you. It's highly, is it likely? Probably not, but there is a chance. And the the judge that we had, uh, we changed judge so many times. And the judge that we ended up with was a new judge. And she said, we cannot predict what this judge does. Nobody can. And I strongly advise that we try to settle outside of court. So we went back into negotiations. And at this point, after that conversation with my lawyer, I got off the phone and I was alone. Everyone was gone. I was in the house by myself. And I just broke down. I literally of course. cried for the first time for the first time in five years, mind you. I cried. And I got on my knees and I just cried out like I just said, God, I'm scared. I'm so scared right now. And I've never admitted that. I never admitted that I was scared. Maybe one Because you're a stone. <laughs> I'm the kind of person my mother always says if you don't want things to happen, don't say it. And right. if you, of course, I'm that person who, even though I feel a cold coming on, I'll never say that I have a cold until I'm just flat out in bed. Mm-hmm. Sick. So if I don't say that I'm scared, there'll be nothing to be afraid of. That's my mindset. Mm-hmm. So for me mm-hmm. to actually openly say that I am scared in tears was really me just surrendering because I knew that I had personally done everything that I could. My lawyer was doing everything that she could. Children's AIDS lawyer was doing everything that they could. No one could stop the worst from happening except for God. And I had really mm-hmm. just finally come to that conclusion. And, um, you know, after that, I just had this peace. And I just knew that no matter what happened, whether we were able to settle out of court or whether we went to court and we lost and Harlem was placed with his grandmother, that it was going to be okay. I just started, instead of praying for Harlem to stay with us, I started praying for God's will. Whatever your will is, I know is, is perfect. And I know it may not be what we want. And I know it may hurt in the beginning. But I'm now just praying for your will to be done. Because if your will is done, I know Harlem's going to be safe wherever mm-hmm. he goes. And if your will is done, then I know my family will heal from losing him. And I know that at some point in my life, I'll look back and I'll know that it was the right thing, whatever it was. Once I had come to grips with that and I really, truly just surrendered the whole situation to him, there was this amazing peace and I wasn't stressed. You know, I was just going through the motions, filling out the affidavits, showing up to court dates, and I just knew that everything was going to be okay, you know? Mm -hmm. My lawyer looked at me one day and said, are you all right? And I was like, (laughs) yeah. She's like, because I just handed you this file, which, you know, is something to be concerned about, and you're smiling. And I just looked at her and I said, you know what? I told her, I just, I started actually exercising my faith. I started mm-hmm. being a Christian through living it out and not just, yes. you know, saying, you know, not, I stopped being the Christian who said grace and went to church like once a month. 
Mm -hmm. to someone who actually every day got up and said, God, guide me today and help me to make decisions and help me to show grace to his grandmother, even though, you know, I'm furious that she's ripping my family apart. I looked at her and I said, no matter what happens, everything is going to be fine. My family's going to be fine and Harlem is going to be fine. Everything is going to be fine. She just kind of rolled her eyes at me like, good grief, don't fall apart on me. (laughs) (laughs) So what ended up happening? So maybe less than a week before Christmas was the final court date. And Harlem was placed with us for adoption. There was a court-mandated restraint. Uh, Yeah, thanks be to God. There was a court-mandated restriction order against his birth father. We settled out of court right before court. The terms are that she sees him once a month. It is Mm -hmm. unsupervised, but with the restraining order against his birth father, we feel that he'll be safe. Mm -hmm. Um, I think also his grandmother has a different perspective on who her son is, which I'm very grateful for. She knows the details. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that were revealed to her during this entire process as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel that God has put us in a position where, you know, he wants us to cultivate a relationship with her, not just to enable access between her and her grandson, but to actually build towards accepting her as part of our family. And, you know, we're in that process now, and it's really day by day, and it's about trust and consistency, but trust in God more than anyone Mm -hmm. else. Yes, of course. I mean, I'm a different person. I'm a completely different yeah, person. Yeah, like how how has that changed your view on life going forward? I'm less of a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, situations like this morning <laughs> mm-hmm. where I would have just completely gone into what my son calls sicko mode where I just completely lose it. I retreat. I see God and literally say, you need to help me with this situation. Give me strength. Give me grace. Give me and the wisdom to deal with this new scenario that I didn't plan for. Mm-hmm. And um, I am fully aware that I'm not alone. God has shown himself to me on so many different occasions that he's real, that his promises are real, that he is there for us, uh, and that he allows us to get into situations so that he can reveal himself to us. You know, a lot of times we end up in scenarios and we're like, why me? You know, what did I do to deserve this? Why am I in this situation? You know, God uses our trials as the canvas that he paints his glory on. Mm-hmm. And that's what people have to understand, that we never end up in a situation that God doesn't already have a way out for us. Mm-hmm. We never end up in that situation. And so that's what those trials are for. They're so that we turn to him and so that he shows that he's real, that he shows us and grows us through that situation, and that we build faith and we build strength and resilience. And the next time a trial arises, whether big or small, we're like, oh, I know what this is. There's no mm-hmm. longer that fear. There's no longer the anxiety. There's no longer the, the helplessness, the hopelessness. That doesn't exist in my life anymore. And I truly feel that I can handle anything that comes my way because of it. The truth is we would not have been able to hide this ordeal children. And we chose to be very open with them about everything that we were going through, including the fact that there was a chance that we could lose Harlem. Mm -hmm. And 
they saw us pray through it. They saw our family gather around us. They saw us put our hands on legal documents and pray over them. And so I think the most valuable thing or the biggest blessing is that my children have this concrete, solid foundation in in Christ. Like my kids pray for things now. They pray for mm-hmm. what they want. They pray for them to overcome things, hurdles. My son plays basketball and he prays to do better at practices. You know, my son, my other son is a junior chef and, you know, he prays for everything. So everything that is scary to them is something that they see as, okay, I need to go to God with this and God can Mm -hmm. help me through this and God will help me through this because they've seen God at work in our lives and they've witnessed God getting us through this whole ordeal. And I think that's beautiful. Priceless. It's beyond priceless. Like I I say this with children all the time, like some things are taught and others are caught. Your kids, you think that they're not paying attention to what you do, but they watch everything. And sometimes we feel like our kids aren't old enough to understand what we're doing, but they still see it. Sometimes I hear my kids recall stories of things when they were so little. I'm like, oh my God, you remember that? And they yeah. remember in such detail and it affects how they act and the, and the things that they do and their belief system. So you just being who you are, and this is what I was speaking to in the beginning, you just being who you are has helped shape, mold, transform, and build the future of these three young men into who they're going to be. And that in itself is powerful, regardless of how how powerful you think that your story is outside of your home just what you are doing inside of your home is like immeasurable. And with, with everything that you have experienced, because I, I knew you before you had your sons. So with everything that you've experienced, with all that you've gone through, with building a business and now being a mom and a wife and all these things, how do you take care of you? What is your self-care routine? I don't do much. I've only recently started taking care of myself. And I think... You know, that was something else that I had to learn to do during this whole process. I wasn't a consideration. I really wasn't. It it was really all about keeping my family intact and trying to maintain as much normalcy as possible for my children, you know, for my husband. I feel like I was the shield. I shielded my husband from a lot of the court proceedings. Um, You know, I got him involved when we needed to make decisions, but you know, dealing with children's aid, dealing with the lawyers. It was just me. I shielded my children from a lot. And so I really was not a consideration. And I started to feel the toll. I started, there were days where I felt like, I feel like I'm going to come undone. And one Mm -hmm. thing I did was um, I started adopting a me day. So in our house, everyone has a me day. If you're born on the 10th of the month, or like say your birthday is the 10th of July, then every 10th of the month is your me day and you get to do whatever you want on that day. I love um, that. I have, yeah, it, it's, it, it teaches them to put themselves first and to think about the things that they want and the things that make them happy and that they are important. Um, so I developed that. And then I decided, you know what? I need a me day every week. <laughs> I, need one, <laughs> mm-hmm. I need one day to myself where it's just me and I only think about me and I only do what I want. And so every Saturday is my me day. My husband is in charge. He handles all meals. He handles the kids. He plans their schedule. 
it's him. Even if I'm in the mm-hmm. house mm-hmm. and they come to me and say, mommy, can I have a glass of milk? I will say, ask your father. It's my mm-hmm. new day. Yeah. So that has been amazing. Um, it has just forced me to just be like, okay, well, what am I doing this Saturday? So, you know, many petties have happened. Um, you know, I've gone out of town. I've done overnighters with, you know, my best friend in a hotel. Um, it's just really one day a week where I come first. I'm selfish. I don't have to give you a bite of my sandwich. I don't have to do anything. It's really me. And the thing is, it's like it was a struggle because as mom, you well know, you know, we just, that's what we do. We share, we give, we mm-hmm. we, deplete, we deplete ourselves to fill other people. And you I can't came to pour the from an empty cup. Yeah, I I am I'm actually not being selfish. I am taking care of the person who takes care of my kids. That's right. You know, what I want what I want my children's daycare worker to be, you know, um underfed, undernourished, undercared for, sleep deprived, mm-hmm. uh depressed, you know, what I or would I want her to take care of herself so that when she's with my children, she's in a good place. And I know that mm-hmm. my kids are going to get the best from her. It's the exact same thing. And we really have to see that uh, as such, you know, that you're not being selfish. You're making sure that you have everything you need in order to fill, like you said, fill the cups of your children. Exactly. Like if you're not okay, you're not going to be good to anybody else. But I think it's interesting how the stone, Chantel, <laughs> as the rock of your family, you know, you had to go through this storm to be smoothed out to appreciate the beauty of taking care of yourself and putting that self-care routine in place. And I mean, it's unfortunate the things that we have to experience in life, but you are who you are today because of them. It's, it's like life being yeah. sandpaper that had to smooth you out. <laughs> Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it's true. You can't make anything smooth by rubbing it against something smooth. You have to rub it against something rough to make it smooth. Right. And I can honestly say as insane as my story is, I don't think I would change anything because mm-hmm. of who I am today and who my family is today. It's too valuable. The outcome is too valuable to say that I would change anything. Mm-hmm. Speaking of personalities, (laughs) I love to use this article that I found to ask you this question because it says a lot about your personality. So I came across this article that says your favorite shoe says a lot about your personality. And so far, it's been pretty on point. My question to you, Chantel, is what is your favorite? I love. I love, love, love a wedge. Mm. Yeah, I love wedges. They they give you the stability that you need mm-hmm. uh, to walk. Like I can run in a wedge. I can bogle in a wedge. I can do whatever <laughs> I want in a wedge. Um, but they still give you that lift and that feminine touch that you would get from a high heel. I like the idea of being elevated and being propped up but mm-hmm. being stable and not having to worry about, you know, my stability. I love a wedge. Okay. And they're so versatile. Like you can, you know, there's summer wedges, there's wedge boots, which are really, really gorgeous. Yeah. I love a wedge. So a wedge woman 
is self-confident. You're someone who knows how to carry yourself. You're graceful, assured, and always have a strong presence. There's something inviting and warm about you that draws people to your company. The wedge is willful, has a strong sense of self, and is very outgoing. I'd have to say that's about 90% accurate. (laughs) (laughs) 90% is good. I'll take it. I'll take it. That's crazy. I'm not always very confident. But uh, I definitely exude confidence. I fake it mm-hmm. most of the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's wow. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Chantal, yeah. because we have gone way beyond our normal 45 minutes, I think we've just passed an hour. I want you to tell the people where they can stay connected with you online to get more from you. Okay, so Instagram is probably the best platform to reach me on you can find me on anointed mom that's anointed underscore mom and that's where I chronicle my motherhood stories uh neri magazine so neri n-e-r-i underscore magazine uh is where I talk about the stories uh that we cover in the magazine and neri media is where I talk about my branding exploits I talk about our clients and the work that we do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for for coming on and sharing your story. I'm so honored that you said yes, because I know you've been hesitant about sharing your story, but it is so powerful, especially how you've been able to get through it and still have such a beautiful, positive mindset. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Until next time, subscribe to our newsletter at awalkinmystilettos.com and grab a copy of the A Walk in My Stilettos book available online everywhere. And if you received value from this show, if Chantel's story has touched you in any way, please share it with a friend that needs to hear her testimony. Make sure you screenshot it, share the episode on social media and tag us. I'm at the real McKinney Smith and Chantel, you're at anointed underscore mom or near yes. media <laughs> and send us your your guest suggestions we're looking for new guests for next year and continue to walk in greatness in your stilettos in a manner worthy of your calling <laughs>